You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to pick up right where we left off. This morning, we are going to talk yet again about a basic Christian principle, which is voluntary humility. We are taught to voluntarily think of ourselves as secondary, not as primary. To think of Christ as primary, and then to think of other people as ahead of ourselves, as better than us, thinking on the things of others rather than the things of our own. And then we are called to voluntarily place ourselves in a position of humility and subjection, because that is the opposite of the chief sin that's spoken of all the way through the Bible. Anybody want to tell me what the chief sin is spoken of all the way through the Bible? Pride. Pride. See how easy that was? And I'm proud of you for knowing that. Um, It's always pride, arrogance, feeling that you are self-sufficient, feeling that you don't need anybody, you're just fine. And our society does emphasize that. Self-made man, just do it. Get out there and be number one. All of that kind of advertising and marketing teaches us how to be self-sufficient. But actually, Christianity teaches that you need to be completely dependent on Christ as your source not only of your salvation, but your source of well-being, your source of health, your source of The income that you have, the source of everything that you own, the source of your attitude and the way that you parent or the way that you're a husband or a wife, it really does enter into every aspect of our human existence here. And so we are called to voluntarily subject ourselves, and Paul is going to talk about that again, but this time he's going to put it in the frame of voluntary humility for the sake of the conscience of your brother. And that is the very, very opposite of pride. Pride says, if you can't dig me, that's your problem. If you can't hang with me, then you're just not cool. But the Bible, Paul's theology says that if you're aware that a brother is being offended by your freedom in Christ, that you would curb your own behavior and even put a limitation on your own freedom in front of them rather than offend their conscience since Christ died for them. And that's very, very different than how we think. But first, we have to finish chapter 7, which is about fathers who have daughters that have not been married yet. They're referred to in the NASB as virgins. These are just unmarried daughters. And so Paul has been saying, whatever state you're in, whatever state you're called in, remain in that state. Because as we saw last week, and as we'll see again this morning... Paul believes that Jesus was going to be right back in his time, in his generation. And that really was the belief, the great fervor of the first century church, because, as you know, when Jesus was leaving the planet and gathered his apostles to him, one of the last questions that they asked him was, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were expecting it right now. 
We've been waiting for the Messiah. Messiah is finally here. Do everything else the prophet said you were going to do. And his answer, since they asked a time question, his answer was a time answer. He said to them, it's not up to you to know the times, the seasons that the father's placed in his, in his own hands. It's up to God what's going to happen. Well, now we know something that the first century church didn't know, which was that there would be at least a 2,000-year gap between Jesus leaving the planet and Jesus coming back. With each successive generation of the church, there has been great anticipation that he would be back. And when I look around at the world right now, I think there's never been a better time than now, as far as I'm concerned. Because I'm here right now. And so it would be good for me if Jesus would come back right now. But there are also certain things that the prophets have said were going to happen in the world that seem to be right at the precipice right now. They're right on our doorstep. For instance, 50 years ago, you could read that no one could buy, sell, or trade without a mark. And you'd think, well, what would that be? Would that be a tattoo? Would that be a... Now it's not even difficult to imagine that now that we have electronic money, that if all the banks or all the government decided that everybody had to be chipped, which is already going on with all the animals and stuff, that all of a sudden everybody would have a mark without which they could not buy, sell, or trade. We can imagine that. Now, where we couldn't imagine it 50 years ago. So I see things like that, and I think, well, we're closer now, obviously, even chronologically, than we've ever been, and uh, I, I'm up for this afternoon. <laughs> so, so it's as bad as it's ever been, but also it's always been bad. As long as there's ever been humans, it's been bad. People think, well, America right now is decaying and rotting from the inside, and certainly there's lots of evidence that that's true, but you can find lots of great kingdoms of this world, great empires that once upon a time were at least uh, God-fearing. If you look at the history of the British Empire, you can see all of the God participation in the British Empire, and then it was busted up, and now it's uh, also depleted from what it once was. So in the history of the world, even if we look back at the Romans or the Greeks, we can look back at cultures that were once thriving and that are now gone. So if Jesus chooses to tarry, if Jesus isn't right back immediately, well, that's up to him. But the anticipation from the very first century of the very first disciples was are you going to come back now? Are you going to do it now? And I'm asking the same question. Are you ready now? How much worse does it have to get? Are you going to come back now? I had somebody on Facebook recently ask me, do you plan to vote in the upcoming election? After all, you are reformed, and so you believe that God has already predestined the outcome if God has predestined the outcome, why do you even vote? And so I wrote back and said, the end is already determined, but God uses means. God has already determined who's going to win the election, but then he's going to use the means of people's votes to get that person into office. 
And so if there are Christians who choose to vote in the upcoming election, I think that's legitimate and can also be a God-ordained process. And if there are people who look at the candidates and say, I can't in good conscience vote for either of these, well, that's up to you as an individual to choose. So all of that to say, Paul is going to first talk here about fathers who have virgin daughters, and he's going to say, stay in the condition you're in, because Jesus is going to be right back, but if you choose to let your daughter marry, you have not sinned. And if you choose to keep your daughter unmarried, you have not sinned. And he expected that Jesus was going to be back so soon that it was pointless to make any grand changes to your life because Jesus would be right back. If we can take anything away from this and from the things that we learned last week, you can take away this one central thought, which is if you're a married person, well, then you're going to have to get involved in your marriage. You're going to have to spend the time, put the effort forward, because Paul is going to say it's one man, it's one woman, and it's for life. And don't leave each other and put the effort forward that it takes to be married. And then he says, and if you're unmarried, it's just easier. So let's read it. Starting at verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So he's saying the Lord has not spoken on this particular question. Apparently this is a question that the Corinthians had written to him. This was something that they were arguing about, so Paul is laying it out. What about virgins who are not married yet? I don't have any command from the Lord for you, but I am going to offer you an opinion, and I think my opinion is valid based on the fact that by the mercy of God, he has made me a trustworthy steward of his words, his thoughts, his theology. And so Paul is offering his opinion. I think, verse 26 says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. He's talking about the fact that the church is being persecuted. And as the church is being persecuted and having to hunker down more and having to cloister together more to protect each other, in view of all of that, this is my opinion. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now what he's saying is to be married takes work, takes effort. And because it takes work and effort, then you're not going to be able to devote yourself 100% to the things of God. And so if you are released from a wife, which is a really interesting phrase. Remember last week, I mentioned that Paul is talking to three different groups of people. He's talking to people who are unmarried because they've never been married. 
He's talking to people who have once been married but currently are not because the unbeliever has left. And then he's also talking to those that are widowed. They've stayed with their wife or husband until the end of their marriage. Here he's addressing virgins. In a moment, he's going to talk more about the widows. But he also says in passing, if you are released from a wife. You may recall last week that he said, if the unbeliever leaves, then let them leave. And that a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such a case because we're all called to peace. So if it's true that there's somebody in their midst whose unbelieving husband or wife has left, then that person is not in bondage, and Paul is calling for peace within the church, that is somebody who has been released by a wife or a husband. So he says, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Well, then don't seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. So there's Paul's declarative statement that the time has been shortened. The time is short. Christ is going to be right back. So as a result, don't get too tied to this world. Don't grasp on to the things of this world, whatever those things are, because Jesus is going to be right back. So verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord. So, Paul's attitude is, I'm not putting any kind of compunction on you. I'm not creating a rule here. I'm just trying to give you the opportunity to worship the Lord, to live for the Lord to the fullest. But he said, if you're married, there's no sin in that. I'm just simply saying it's easier if you're unmarried to then devote yourself to the things of God. After all, he's going to be right back. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin, and then NASB adds the word daughter, it's not in the original Greek, but it's implied in the language, if he's acting unbecoming toward his virgin daughter, what this means is back in this patriarchal society, it was up to the father to decide when it was appropriate for his daughter to marry and who she was going to marry. 
All the young girls in the room right now are very happy that their fathers no longer choose who they're going to marry. But at this point, it was up to the father whether the daughter could marry. But if the daughter wants to be married and if it would be beneficial for you to, to go ahead and arrange a marriage for her, Paul says, that's okay, that, that's not a sin. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she should be of full age, and if it must be so, then let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own daughter a virgin, well, then he also will do well. So, verse 38, so then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. So all the way along, Paul's attitude is, the things of this world are something that we have to grapple with. The things of this world are something that tie us down, that make it more difficult for us to devote ourselves 100% to the Lord, especially knowing that he's going to be back soon. Now, we know historically that Paul's motivation here, the return of Christ immediately, is not a motivation that actually came true. But we still, and this is why I began by saying we've never been closer to the return of Christ, we still constantly anticipate the return of Christ. And being in that we anticipate the return of Christ, I think this is still good advice. If you can remain single, that's a gift. That's something that God has given you for the good and for the glory of the worship of God. But, as he said last week, if you cannot contain yourself, then go ahead and marry, because it's better to be married than to burn with passion. But if you can remain single, remain single. So then he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife, now here's Paul stating the plain and simple fact. One man, one woman, until death, that's the marriage vow. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whomever she chooses, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is with no husband. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God in this. Okay, so that's the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7 is motivated by Paul's anticipation that Christ is going to be right back. And as a result, he tells everybody, stay as you are. If you were called to Christ and you're single, stay single. If you were called to Christ and you're married, stay married. If you're called to Christ and you're married and the unbeliever leaves... Well, then let them leave. You're under no bondage in that case. But the biblical approach to marriage is one man, one woman for life. And a woman who loses her husband through death is free to marry again, 
but Paul believes that it would be better if she just remained as she was because it's just less trouble. Got it? Got it. Are there any questions about chapter 7? We got it? Because now we'll get into the more complicated chapter 8. Chapter 8, as I began my introduction this morning, I said, this is all about voluntary humility. This is all about seeing yourself as the guardian of the well-being of your brother so that you don't purposefully offend your brother in the things that you allow. Now, Paul's going to start right out by talking about knowledge. He's going to say, we all have knowledge. He's talking to the church. Okay, we all have knowledge. He's going to define knowledge in a couple of verses. It's the knowledge of what Christ did. It's the understanding of everything Christ accomplished on our behalf. And that we're knowledgeable that an idol is nothing. And that Christ is everything. Okay, he says we all have that knowledge that we are free from the law. We all have that knowledge that we have the sort of liberty that Paul already said two chapters ago, there's nothing in and of itself that is unlawful to me. Not everything is expedient, not everything is good, but there's nothing that is unlawful. So that's what he's talking about here. We all have that general knowledge of the fact that we are free in Christ, but apparently, and it's going to come up again later in the book, but apparently there were some people who, because of their freedom, were flaunting their freedom in front of people who had a weaker conscience than they had. You know the attitude. Like I said a few minutes ago, if you can't dig me, if you can't see that I've got so much freedom in Christ, the problem is you. But Paul says, no, the problem's actually the person who is not able to step down to the person who has a weaker conscience. Now, in Corinth, the particular dispute was over eating meat that was sold in the marketplace, in the shambles, meat that had probably been sacrificed to an idol. So the debate was, is it okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols since we know, since we have knowledge that an idol is nothing? And since an idol is nothing... The portions, oftentimes, that were sacrificed to idols were the lesser portions, and the better portions of a sacrifice were then sold in the marketplace. So there's some good food there. Is it okay to eat that food? And then especially if you know that eating that food is going to offend a brother who still has a conscience about idols. Should you then flaunt your freedom in Christ? Or for their sake, should you not eat the meat even though you have the freedom to eat it? And you can apply this principle to a great many things. I remember a a pastor friend a, a number of years ago who told me I don't go to movies. I forget how it came up. Somebody said something about movies. And he said, I don't go to movies. Well, at the time, as a younger preacher myself and full of uh, vinegar myself, I, I thought, well, that's not right. Why would you restrict your freedom? You've got the freedom to go to movies. Why wouldn't you go to movies? And he explained it to me as, yes, but what if somebody from my congregation with a weak conscience 
sees me walking out of a movie they don't approve of, won't that be offensive to them? Well, in those younger days, I still kind of went, well, then, well, then they have to get over it. Because you have that kind of freedom. But here's the principle. I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. If you know it, go to sleep. I'll let you know when to get back up. <laughs> um, years ago, John Riesinger was sitting at dinner with a bunch of preachers who didn't know each other. He told me this story. And as the waitress went around the table asking them all what they wanted to drink, they were all afraid to order anything other than water or a Coke or something. So they all ordered their water or their Coke, soft drink, whatever. And then finally, one of the last preachers broke the trend and said, I'll have a glass of wine. And all of a sudden, all the preachers at the table went, I'm going to change my order because now that I know it's okay, I'd like to go ahead and have some wine. So they started ordering various alcoholic drinks now that they knew that nobody at the table was going to object. Well, they got around to John, and he ordered some water to drink. And they said to him, but Brother John, don't you have freedom? Because they equated the right to drink some alcohol with that God-given Christ-like freedom that they all shared. That's the knowledge thing that Paul's going to talk about in a moment. And John said something to them, and then he related it to me, that I've just never forgotten. It was 25 years ago or more that he told me this story, but I've never forgotten it. Because his answer was, yes, but true freedom includes the freedom to say no. And that helped me a lot to know that it's also right to say no. Well, here Paul is going to say, if you have knowledge and you have freedom, that you can say that everything is lawful. There's nothing against you. If that's the kind of freedom you have, it includes the freedom to say no if you know that your freedom would offend your brother. He's the weaker brother. He's the weaker conscience. And if he still thinks that it's wrong to drink, then don't drink in front of him. Go home and drink. If he still thinks that it's wrong to go to movies, don't go to movies in front of him. But genuine freedom, true freedom, true Christ-like freedom includes the ability to voluntarily humble yourself for his sake. You got that? Okay, so that's what Paul's going to be talking about here. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge makes arrogant. <laughs> Everybody mm-hmmed at the same moment. This was one of the problems in Corinth was that that knowledge of the freedom that they had in Christ, instead of it being to the glory of Christ, instead of it lifting up the finished work of Christ and all that he had done for his people, they turned it into a matter of arrogance so that it became, I have such radical freedom. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to go ahead and do it even if you disagree with it. And so it puffed them up. It made them arrogant 
But then the last phrase says, but love edifies. Love sacrifices on behalf of other people. We have talked before about the various Greek words that are translated love. In the English language, we only have the word love. But there are a couple of different words that are translated love. There is phileo. There's phileo of an Adolphus, a brother. That's where we get Philadelphia from. But then there is also agape. Now, there is a third word in Greek. There's also eros. It means erotic love. You don't find it anywhere in the Bible, but in classical Greek it exists. We would also translate that as a form of love. But, but agape love, this is the tough one. Agape love is the love that God has for his creatures and that he calls us to rise to. And the best definition I've ever heard of agape is doing what is best for the person that is loved regardless of whether the person being loved wants it, knows they need it, or is thankful for it. Because that's the kind of love God had for you in sacrificing his son when you were still an enemy. You didn't want it. You didn't know you needed it. You didn't say thank you for it. But he did what was for your benefit despite the fact that you were his enemy because that is sacrificial love. Okay, well, that's what we're called to within the Christian community. Not just, I'll love you as long as you're good to me. And as long as we get along okay, then we'll continue to be brothers in arms. Instead, we're called to love each other with a sacrificial love that includes humbling yourself for the good of other people. Loving each other sacrificially. So, knowledge, being aware of what Christ has done and thinking that it's all about you, dig me, that makes you arrogant. That just puffs you up. But genuine love, genuine sacrifice edifies. Verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Now, this is a statement that I wish we're tattooed on pretty much everybody's Facebook account and every comment that was made on YouTube and every... This just doesn't seem to be widely known out there in the professing world because there are so many people out there kind of bragging about what they know. I've got this great knowledge. It's the word gnosis. It's not epinosis. It's not complete knowledge. It's just gnosis. It's just knowing. And uh, that kind of knowledge puffs people up until they sit behind their keyboards and write all sorts of horrible things that they would never write person to person. And Paul says, even if you're so lifted up in yourself that you think you're really knowledgeable, you still don't know the important stuff anywhere near as well as you ought to know it. Because you're still caught up in your own ego. And if you had real, genuine knowledge of the things of God and the things of Christ, it would lead you to help your brother, not hurt your brother. And if your religion, if your theology, if your particular denominational bent causes you to say, I'm better than other people, 
Well, then you still don't know what it is to bring about peace and sacrificial love within the Christian community. So Paul would say, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known it as he ought to know it. In other words, we're all still learning. Think about Isaiah writing, and I know I've quoted this many times, but I am taken by this verse. God speaking for himself, God defending himself, says to human beings, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. So are my ways above your ways. Which means that the distance between your optimal knowledge and what God knows is so infinitely wide that the distance between what I know and what you know is very small by comparison. But the distance between here and God, in other words, there's plenty left to know. He hasn't told us everything. And God's under no compunction to tell us everything. There's plenty more revelation to come and plenty more knowledge to acquire So then, who are you to get puffed up in your knowledge? If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, then he is known by him. So here that is again. If you have the love of God, if your central issue is God in your life, if the primary thing is God in your life, then that's going to affect every other aspect of your life. Nothing is going to go untouched. That's going to change your thinking. It's going to change your behavior. It's going to change the way that you interact with the world and the way that you stand in society. Everything is going to be different if you love God. And if you love God, that is proof positive that you are known by God. Remember when Jesus was talking to those folks who who believed that if they just simply said, I know the Lord, that that was satisfactory. He said when they stand before God, they're going to brag about their own doing. They're going to say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we done great works in your name? And he's going to say to them, these are all those people who say, Lord, Lord. He says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember what the division was? He's going to say to them, I never knew you. Well, he knows who everybody is. He has general knowledge of who everyone he's ever made is, but he's never had that intimate relationship with them, the kind of relationship that would change who they are and what they're like. And so since natural men who are depraved by their very nature, who come out of the womb speaking lies, because human beings are depraved, if you have the genuine love of God in your life, which is not a natural human characteristic, if you have the genuine love of God in your life, that is proof positive that God knows you because God has changed you. He has put his spirit inside you and he has drawn you to himself and that's why you love God. 
Nobody ever woke up one day under their own power, under their own compunction, and said, you know, I probably ought to stop sinning this way. I probably ought to go to God, and then things will be better for me. That just doesn't happen naturally. It only happens if God interrupts your life and introduces himself to you, draws you to himself, and then changes everything in your life from within. And if that happens and you love God, that is proof that he knows you. And by the way, that's really good news. It's good to know that God knows you. Knows you so well, knows you so intimately that he wrote down your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Thank you, God. Yeah. Let's say the world's been around, let's say human beings have been around for 6,000 years. That seems to be the biblical accounting. There are plenty of people arguing about how long humans have been on the planet, but let's, let's go with the biblical idea. 6,000 years of human beings, give or take. Before there was ever the first human being, God knew you and loved you. Guaranteed your eternal salvation 6,000 years in advance and wrote your name down. Before the world was formed, God knew you and loved you. And the proof positive is, do you love God? And if you love God more than you love anything else in this world, and especially more than you love you, Isn't that Jesus who said, any man who hateth not, brother, sister, husband, wife, yea, in his own life also, cannot be my disciple. If you love God preeminently over everything, that is proof that God, since before the foundation of the world, knew you. And you'll never have to worry about Christ saying, I never knew you. Instead, he's going to say, I always knew you. I knew you right from the beginning. And I knew I was going to bring you home. All right, I I just like that phrase. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. So if people are sacrificing meat to a nothing, then that shouldn't offend your conscience. It'd be the same as somebody cutting up an animal to anything, to a beach ball, to, a, to anything. It's a nothing. There's no source to the worship. I don't know how I came up with beach ball. I don't know. If there's no God to actually sacrifice to that exists behind that idol, then that idol has no power, and sacrificing to that powerless idol does nothing to the meat. The meat's still good. The people have been fooled into believing they're sacrificing to an idol, but it's done nothing to the meat. For even if there are so-called gods, this is verse 5, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, think about Greek and Roman mythology with its pantheon of gods, all the various different gods and lords that they had to deal with. So, indeed, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, 
For the Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, who is Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Okay, so let's bring this down to brass tacks again. Good, I found something. This is my glass. It's a Snoopy peanuts glass. I, I don't know why this is the glass I've had up here in the pulpit forever. But this is my glass. Can I do what I want with this glass? Like if I choose to drink right now out of the glass, can I? Yes. Good, thank you, because I'm thirsty. My glass. I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah. What if I choose to never drink out of this glass again? Is that okay with you? Sure. Why? Do whatever I want. Yeah. Why? Because it's my glass. It's your property. How old are you? Ten. The ten-year-old gets it. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. It's my glass. Uh, that's my watch. Can I do whatever I want with that watch? Yes. If I take a hammer to that watch, do you care? No. I mean, it would be sad. Yes, Charlie. It would be sad. It was my father's watch, and it was given to me. Yes. But it's my watch. What if I ripped up my tie? Would it matter? No, because no, it's mine. I can do whatever I want with what's mine. You get it? Okay. Who do we belong to? God. We belong to God in Jesus Christ. Can he do whatever he wants with what's his? He can do whatever he wants with what's his. And he can lay expectations on you and he can tell you to be different and to be separate and to be holy and to be godlike and to change your behavior in particular ways so that you are a good reflection of him in the world. And he has every right to do that because you belong to him. And at no point do you get to say, no, 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 I belong to me. Because that's how the world thinks. I belong to me. I'll do whatever I want with me. I'll take my body anywhere I want to take my body. I'll get engaged in anything I want to get engaged in because I'm me and I belong to me. That's the world's thinking. But the Christian understands that the maker of everything, the maker of heaven and earth, created us for his purpose and that we exist for his purpose and that we are ultimately here to glorify him. So then Paul can use that as the basis, as he's going to in a moment, to say, now that you know that you belong to God and that you exist for him, change your behavior. Here's what he says. There is one God. He is the Father from whom are all things and we exist for him. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, Verse 7, not all men have this knowledge. Well, that's basically true, isn't it? So now he's defined what he was talking about in verse 1. Now he's defining what the knowledge is. The knowledge is that there is one God, the Father, through whom everything exists and it all exists for him. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ by whom are all things we exist through him. That's the knowledge that he's been talking about, and not all men have that knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idle 
until now because in Corinth there were lots of temples to lots of different idols and so some people would still have a conscience about an idol some having been accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol for their conscience being weak is defiled so what he's talking about is there are still some people who don't have the extent of the knowledge of the freedom of Christ that we preach, that Paul preaches, that we teach, that we all believe we have in Christ. I would make that even stronger. That we are all convinced of through the teaching of Paul that we have in Christ. Not everybody has that knowledge. And so some people who still have knowledge of what an idol is and that the meat was sacrificed to an idol, if they were to eat that meat, knowing that it's idol meat, would then defile their own conscience. And so they would not eat that meat. And then along comes Mr. Christian with his freedom and his knowledge, and he sits down across from him and says, hey, eat up, it's good, let's eat, let's go, let's eat up. So then the person with the defiled conscience, the person with the weak knowledge, is going to look at the stronger Christian and say, well, if it's good for him, it must be good for me. But because he's aware that it's sacrificed to an idol and his conscience has been offended by that fact, if he mimics your behavior, he will ultimately be, the word here is destroyed. It's a word for death. That he's eating death to himself because he's defiling his own conscience on the basis of what you do. You get the scenario? You get what Paul is building here? However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food, Paul points out. Food is not the issue. Food can't defile a man. It can't commend us to God. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor are we the better if we do eat. So he's laying out the basic theology of what to eat. If you're fortunate enough to have some food set before you, eat it without asking questions. Was this sacrifice to an idol or was it not? Don't even ask. Don't even bring it up. Just eat the food. In the first century, in the Middle East, what was job one for absolutely everybody every day? Do you know what it was? Find food. food. You had to find food every day. We don't feel the impact of this argument because we open our refrigerators and there's plenty of food. You can drive less than a block from here and find food. People will sell you food. You don't even have to get out of your car. Somebody will hand you food. You talk to a box, you pull forward, they hand you food. So we don't feel the impact of this argument. The argument is you've got to find food every day and food doesn't commend you to God. If you're fortunate enough to come in contact with some good food, eat it. And don't ask questions for your conscience sake. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor are we the better if we do eat it. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block 
to the man with the weak conscience. Now, I've said it a couple times this morning, but I'm going to say it again. Far too much of the professing Christian world seems to think that the person with the really free conscience has the authority over the person with the weak conscience. Far too often you see people with that uh, freedom of conscience openly decrying people with a weak conscience, openly making fun of people with a weak conscience. You obviously don't believe Christ the way I do. You obviously don't hold all the five points the way I do. I've got them down. I've got it all perfect. I've I've got freedom in Christ. And if you don't have that, then clearly you're not as saved as I am. I'm just better than you in my Christianity. But Paul's arguing just the opposite. That if you really have that kind of freedom, if you are known of Christ, God, if you do love God, then you would, out of love, out of sacrifice, voluntarily humble yourself in light of the person with the weak conscience so that they are not destroyed. Food does not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat these things that are sacrificed to idols? If a person has a weak conscience and he recognizes that that food was sacrificed to an idol and he sees you full of strength and knowledge and full of freedom and he sees you eating meat that was sacrificed to a nothing and you're even eating at the temple, the shambles, the marketplaces were oftentimes part of the temple communities. And so they see you sitting there eating the good meat. Aren't they going to be offended because... They think it was sacrificed to an idol, and they still think that an idol is something, and therefore Paul's arguing, well, then you shouldn't go to the temple and eat meat for their sake, which I think falls into the same category as, well, then you shouldn't drink alcohol if you're having lunch with somebody whose conscience is weak. Well, then you shouldn't go to the movies in front of somebody whose conscience is weak. Well, then you should make up your own list. I knew a guy one time years ago who believed because he had hustled pool for so many years that when he became a Christian, he could no longer play pool. Okay, well, pool's not a problem for me. It's a game. I haven't played it in years, but I don't believe God's up there going, you know, oh, you played a game. You're wrong. I don't. Hustle pool, I don't gamble on pool, but I like to play pool, or at least used to like to. So that guy who could not play pool anymore because it offended his conscience, I would never challenge that guy to go play pool because he would look at me and my freedom of conscience and for my sake say, oh, okay, yeah, Pastor Jim, let's go play some pool. But I know that it offends his conscience to do that because he's already told me that he doesn't believe he can do it anymore. So 
You can apply this to so very many things. If somebody has a personal conviction, well then don't offend their conviction. Instead, recognize that you have freedom in Christ and then teach and then pray and hope that they come along in their freedom, but don't offend them for their lack of freedom because they are somebody that Christ died for. And if Christ would die for them, who are you to hurt them? So here Paul says, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. If someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, a brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, verse 12, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Because what's the primary rule? Care for others, sacrificial love. Knowledge puffs up, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And if you really, truly, genuinely love your brother, then you're going to help your brother, and when he's weak... You're going to recognize those weaknesses and try not to step on those weaknesses and offend your brother and make him hurt his conscience to gratify you. And Paul says when you do that, you're sinning against Christ. Sure, they've offended their conscience, but you're acting in an unchristian way and you're sinning against what Christ did in sacrificing for that brother. Christ loves that brother. God's always known that brother. God's written that brother in the Lamb's book of life. And yet you, in your arrogance and you're puffed up in your knowledge, think that it's okay for you to hurt that person? Well, it's not. Last verse. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. So it all comes back to voluntary humility. It all comes back to recognizing, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, that you are to esteem others as better than yourself. That you are to look on the things of others and not just on <coughs> your own things. And that you're to care for each other. You're to protect each other. By the way, Paul didn't write about this, but I think, here's Jim's opinion. I think the only way you can know what your weaker brother's weaknesses are, did I say weaknesses? <laughs> the only way you can know what your brother's weaknesses are is if you get to know him. It's only then that you're going to understand where their points of, of difference are going to be, where their hot spots are, where their weaknesses are. You're only going to understand it as you get to know them and love them and share with them. And when you recognize that somebody just doesn't have the freedom you have, rather than calling them out for their lack of freedom, help them. Reach down to them. Help them along. And maybe one day they'll have the freedom you have, but they don't have it now. And if they don't have it now, then in sacrificial love, 
reach down to your brother and help them along. And don't get lifted up in pride and arrogance and get puffed up and think that you're the one who's doing it right because I'm here to tell you right now, I've been at this Christian thing a long time and here's something I know. I know that there's a whole lot left to know. And the more I know, the more I know I don't know. And the more I find out, the more I go, why didn't I know that before? We're always, always gaining knowledge of who Christ is, who God is, and it's such an expansive topic, nobody's going to have perfect knowledge of it in this lifetime. So if you're not perfect, don't act like you are. And if you discover your brother's imperfections, don't be arrogant enough to destroy them over that imperfection. Make sense? Yes. I'm using the word perfection as completion, the way it is in the New Testament. When I say your brother's imperfection, I mean the place where he doesn't have perfect knowledge of freedom in Christ yet. Make sense? Yes. Am I the only one up here all by myself? Yammering away for no reason. Do you get it? Yes. Oh, there you are. I wondered where you were. What were you going to say, Gladys? I was going to say God is bringing that person along. If you participate in that, you're participating in God's work. You know, earlier I talked about voting, and I said, you know, God's got it predestined in the end, but he uses means. I feel the same way about the weaker brothers. God's bringing them along, but he uses means. And sometimes you're the means he uses. So then get on God's side, take sides against yourself, get on God's side in this enterprise, and help the weak brother along, or the weak sister, not to leave the sisters out. As long as we remember that it's God who's doing the work, and it's not our job to make that change in that person's life. Right. And I think that's part of the reason that we're called to reach down to them rather than say, hey, come on up here where I am. It's God that's going to have to reveal it. It's God that's going to have to make the change. Yeah. And if you know that, if you know that everybody is on their own individual path and that God has the individual ability to deal with everybody wherever he finds them individually, then you can't look at somebody and say, you're not where I am in this walk. Therefore, you're lesser than I am because you don't know things the way I know them or have the completion of theology that I have. Then you have to recognize, as Steve just said, that it's God dealing with individuals and it's God doing it, not you. Right? I expanded on your thought. Was that fair? Any questions about that? It's pretty plain. It's pretty straightforward. All right. Say goodbye to the Internet people. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.